BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Grace Wan, in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the National Police Support Fund, the American Veterans Honor Fund. These names might sound familiar if you've ever answered a fundraising robocall. They're among five conservative political nonprofits the New York Times has investigated for raising nearly $90 million, almost all of which they plowed back into fundraising and paying themselves. The Times' David Farenthold tells us more about the scheme and how lax federal oversight and gaps in the campaign finance system may have enabled it. That's next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in for Mina Kim. The robocall is one of the banes of modern life. Given the links that many of us go to to avoid robocalls, it's hard to believe that it's actually a lucrative way to raise money. But robocalling is exactly how a group of conservative consultants were able to raise $89 million. They claim the money would be used to politically support firefighters, veterans, and police officers. But according to a new investigative report by The New York Times, nearly all that money went back into fundraising and into paying the consultants themselves. Here to tell us more is New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold. Welcome to Forum, David. Hey, thank you for having me. Oh, we're pleased that you could join us. You know, David, at the heart of your investigation is the robocall. And for some people, that might conjure up a robotic voice. But let's listen to a sample call. Carla? Finally, it's good to hear a kind voice. That last call was tougher on me than my mother-in-law's meatloaf. (laughs) I'm only kidding. Well, so, David, if you stick around to hear the rest of the pitch, if you don't hang up after you hear that kind of lame joke, what are you going to hear? Well, uh, this is a, I mean, I guess the first thing that strikes me is like, as you said, this is not a person. That sounds like a person. It sounds like a, a, you know, a guy who's making a lot of, making a lot of phone calls. It's a, that's a recording. You're talking to a computer. So right after this, you hear that sort of introductory joke. You'll hear him say, I'm calling from the American Police Officers Alliance. And we're raising money to help, you know, the officers are under attack, police need our help. We're raising money to help the officers. Well, let's take a listen to um, that request. This is Frank Wallace calling for the American Police Officers Alliance. Very quickly, we're mailing out the envelopes to help fight for our officers who protect our nation's citizens, just like yourself. Once you receive your card in the mail, you can send back whatever you think is fair this time. That's all. I mean, I'm listening to that and... 
I would not think that that is a robot. These calls are so sophisticated. How, how do they work? Well, it's something called the. This is something that was new to me. I did not understand this at all before I started working on this story. It's something called a soundboard, and what it looks like is to is somebody sitting behind a computer looking at a screen that has a lot of sort of clickable buttons, and the buttons in, are, are all to play pre-recorded dialogue by this voice actor. So you know, there's ones that say you know long spiel, and that's what you're hearing now. You know, click this, click the give me money spiel. But there's also pre-recorded responses to questions. So if you say are you a robot? There's, you know, this uh-huh. the person can click a button and it says, oh, no, I'm not a robot. Uh, you know, this button, there's questions to answer. You know, is this a charity? How does this help the officer? Sort of, you know, five or ten common questions and answers. But also things like, uh-huh, um, chuckle. The, all the sort of parts of speech to where you might have a significant conversation with this computer and still not realize you're not talking to a person. I mean, it's really incredible. And are they asking for large amounts of money I mean, um, from the people they're targeting? No, and that's what surprised me also, is they're not asking for, you know, $1,000 or even $100. Usually, then, if they throw out a number, it's like, you know, $75, $50, even $30. Uh, and they, are you supposed to give them money online or right during the call? Well, you heard that, so in the calls, they mention envelopes, you know, or pledge cards. We'll send you out something in the mail. Um, and but they also, if you say yes, yeah, send me a pledge card. What they usually will say, well, why don't you give right now? And then they can take your credit card number right then. Mm-hmm. I've what I've been told is that the the sort of pledge card envelope, send me something in the mail. It, the, sort of one of the common pieces of advice given to seniors about how to not get, not get scammed on the phone is mm-hmm. ask them to send you something in writing. A real group, you know, a, a scam group won't send you something in writing. So these groups often sort of lead with like, hey, we'll send you something in writing if you want. Mm. And sometimes it doesn't even require that. You'll give them money right then. So are these groups not scams then? They're real organizations, the American Police Officers Alliance or the Firefighters and EMS Fund. They, they actually exist. Yeah, they exist. They, they are, you know, they have, they're incorporated. They have, they're registered as nonprofits with the IRS. They, they are legally exist. Whether they do what they're supposed to is another matter. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just curious. I mean, robocalls are a fact of life. They've been going on forever. Everybody gets spam calls. What got you interested in this? Like, why this particular um, situation? Why was this something that you wanted to investigate? Well, so I write about nonprofits for the Times. Uh, and I, you know, what I'm always interested in is cases where people use nonprofits and the sort of trust and, and legal leeway that we give to nonprofits in our society, that they use that as a shield. You know, they use nonprofits as a way to hide something, either to hide influence peddling, self-enrichment, scams, you know, political influence, anything that people use. Because we do give nonprofits not only tax breaks, but also, you know, we give them a lot of trust and a lot of sort of freedom to operate. And if people are using that as kind of a smokescreen to hide something else, that's when I got interested. Mm -hmm. So in in this case, when I, I came to the Times last year and sort of put out a call, hey, on Twitter. If anybody's got a good nonprofit story, let me know. And I got a tip uh, from somebody who said, look, we think we've found something. Mm. There's these political nonprofits that look on the surface like they're not connected at all. They don't have the same offices. They, they look separate. Under the surface, we think they are connected and also that they are basically taking a huge amount of money and then not doing what they said they would do with the money. So we took that tip and, and it took a lot of reporting to flesh that out. 
because these, this, these connections and this operation was really well hidden. But that was the tip that got us started. I love that it was a tip from a, um, one of your readers. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so you said it's, it is really complicated. And looking at that piece, I mean, it was almost Byzantine, the way in which these organizations were able to you know, hide what they were doing. So my understanding is there are five organizations, and mm-hmm. they raised $89 million based on these requests for $50, $75 at a time. Yeah. Is the... How are they able to do that? I mean, I, I understand it's the vehicle is the robocall, but how are they so effective? Well, I think two things. One is that they, as you heard, they're really good robocalls. I mean, mm-hmm. and the one thing that I, I wanted to point out is sort of at the beginning of that robocall, and this was common across a lot of the ones we listened to, is there's a little bit of a guilt trip. Mm-hmm. You know, that last call was so hard on me. You know, sometimes they would say, oh, man, glad I got you. You're harder to catch than a rabbit on roller skates. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so now you feel a little guilty. You feel a little sympathetic to this man you think you're talking to for not, having not picked up the phone before or whoever, you know, however the last person treated him. So they're so effective in that way that you start off feeling like, oh, man, I feel a little bit bad for this guy. Um, the other thing is just volume. They made millions of phone calls. And even if only one in 100 works... Uh, if that one hundred, you know, that gives you fifty bucks, then you've made enough to pay for the other, you know, hundred that you, that didn't work. So they just spent a huge amount of money in fundraising, and make a huge amount of calls uh, to get that that amount of money. So they're legitimate organizations. They have a really sophisticated way of raising money. Where's the harm? Well, what's missing is the, the is the sort of product. So these groups are called five twenty sevens. They're they're nonprofit groups, not a charity as you or I might think of one, but a, a, they're political nonprofits. And the thing that they're supposed to do is to take money from people and then spend it on politics. Basically, spend it trying to get people elected. Uh, and that's what these groups don't do. They do everything but the <laughs> thing that they're supposed to do. So they, they spend about 90% of their money on more fundraising, just keeping the churn of robocalls going. They spend about 3% of money on payments to insiders, people who are actually running them, and only spend about 1% of that $90 million dollars in any way that affects an election, giving money to candidates, running ads for candidates, doing good out the vote election, get out the vote operations. Only about one percent of their money was in any, even in the broadest sense, connected to actual candidates running for office. Well, their political action committees, their five twenty sevens, as you said, why wouldn't they give the money back, put the money back into politics? Why wouldn't they be supporting candidates and issues? Well, it's a great question. I mean, that and that is the blind spot in this system. People who designed the campaign finance system were didn't even think about the idea that you might raise money for politics and then not give it to politicians. Mm. The whole sort of animating idea behind the campaign finance system is we have to, you know, people are going to raise this money. They're going to give it to help politicians. But we need to police as the quid pro quo. We need to make sure people we can limit and, and, and reveal who gives what to which politician. So we know down the line if the politician does them a favor. But the idea that you might raise all this money and then just suck it out of politics, take uh-huh. it, to, you know, give it to yourself, give it to your fundraisers. Basically, nobody conceived of that when they set up the system. So, you know, the question of why did they do it uh, is, you know, we, we obviously put that question to them uh-huh. and they kind of rejected the premise. They said, oh, well, we, we are affecting politics. They have, a, you know, we, if you just define politics broadly enough, everything we do is sort of political. Um, but the question of, you know, why would somebody really set up this system in this way? One example would be there's been a few prosecutions of people who have run operations that looked in some ways like this, that raised a huge amount of money but spent almost nothing on politics. 
And in those cases, what the prosecutor said was, "Look, this is this was a this was a self enrichment scam. Hmm. These people were were trying. You know, they used politics as a guise. They used this nonprofit as a as a sort of a, a cloak to hide an operation that was designed to rich, enrich themselves." Mm-hmm. And uh, do we know who they are? The people behind these organizations? Yeah, the people. What we found was that there's three people, these five groups, as I said, on paper, they all look separate and have separate offices. They're, they're not connected on paper. Behind the scenes, there's three people that connect all of them. They're all former co-workers, these political consultants from Wisconsin who got their start in sort of Republican politics in Wisconsin about 15 years ago. And starting around 2015, they get into this business of working with 527s. And if you look at the groups that we that you know we're talking about that raised these ninety million dollars. Mm-hmm. All of them are funneling money back to these three guys. Mm. And if you talk to the people who, who worked for those nonprofits, they say, "Look, behind the scenes, it was those three guys who were pulling the strings for each one." So three guys from Wisconsin managed to raise eighty mil- eighty nine million dollars over the course of nine years. And do they just they plow the money back into fundraising? Are they also the fundraisers? Is it- no. Well, as far as we can tell, they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they have various fundraising vendors. Some of them are, uh, you know, incorporated in states where we can't learn anything about who they are, who runs them. Um, the ones where we can tell who runs them, they seem separate from the three guys, but the three guys did use these nonprofits to pay themselves for other services, political support services, bookkeeping, mm-hmm. compliance, uh, sort of vaguely defined services. Well, we're talking about political nonprofits called 527s. A report by the New York Times reveals that a group of conservative politicos used these 527s to raise $89 million. They said they'd help veterans and firefighters, police officers, but most of that money went back to fundraising. We have David Farenthold. He's the New York Times investigative reporter who broke this story. Farenthold previously won a Pulitzer Prize covering Donald Trump's false claims regarding charitable contributions. We'd love to hear from you. Have you donated over the phone before? Have you donated to one of these groups? And what's your reaction to what you've been hearing? Or maybe you're a veteran or firefighter or police officer. How do you feel about organizations raising money in your name? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum or give us a call now. We're at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Our phone lines are open and we hope to hear from you. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. We're talking about political nonprofits called 527s and the way a certain group of, of 527s have been using robocalls to raise vast amounts of money, which are not going into politics as they are supposed to. My guest today is David Farenthold. He's a New York Times investigative reporter who broke this story. And we're hearing from you. Have you ever donated on the phone before? Have you donated to one of these groups? And what's your reaction to what you're hearing? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum or give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. So David, one of the more spectacular parts of your uh, investigative report is the fact that I think you scraped 15,000 pages (laughs) to get an understanding of what was happening here. And why did it? Why? How is it so complicated? I mean, how are these organizations managing to fly below the regulatory radar? Well, it's a great question. the The reason is, well, there's two parts to this. The first part is that they made a conscious effort to do as little politics to to affect politics as little as possible. Because the more you affect politics, the more regulated and policed you are. So, for instance, if you spend more than a thousand dollars to help any federal candidate. You have to register with the Federal Election Commission, which is, you know, it has its problems, but it is a, a, it, at least is a more public and aggressive regulator. And more importantly, your, your, all your records go into their database, which is really easily searchable. It's easy to find anything to look for trends. It's a great website. But mm-hmm. if you don't do that, if you raise all this money and don't give any money to anybody, mm-hmm. then the, the people who regulate you are the IRS. The IRS doesn't want this job. It's obviously not the thing that the IRS is focused on. Mm-hmm. And so if you report to the IRS, instead of getting your information going into some really easily searchable database, it gets re- put online as, on this, first of all, on this Byzantine site, which like, like takes a degree in tax law just to find. <laughs> uh, and then it, it's re- rendered as you have to go to these like thousand page long PDFs. A PDF files mm-hmm. just to see six months of any group spending. So imagine you are a donor or, you know, or a potential donor and you get a phone call and you think, well, I want to see, you know, are these guys legit? How do they spend their money? Even if you found their records, what you'd found is a thousand pages of documents or, or transactions just for six months because they broke their spending into like a dollar at a time. Oh. And so it would just, you know, even if I had not had a really good data engineer working with me, mm-hmm. there's no way I would have figured it out. It's my job. Mm. Uh, so we, we had to we had to be put 15,000 pages of those PDFs, mm-hmm. scrape them with a the computer, add them up into a big a giant spreadsheet, and only then were you able to start seeing the trends. Okay, these you know the one dollar transactions add up to these being their biggest vendors, and the, mm-hmm. then we could start to figure out okay, well who are those vendors? Who owns them? Mm-hmm. What are they paying them for? Well, one other aspect of this was that uh, this story is. I think the robocalls from these organizations comprised the majority of robocalls that were being um, sent out into the ether. Is that right? <laughs> they were a huge source of robocalls. So this is something that, like, it's not like there's anybody out there keeping these statistics. Like, mm-hmm. they just robocalls just sort of, as you said, blast out in the ether and, and are are lost. But we got really lucky that there's a group called or a company called Nomo Robo. Uh, it's like an app. <laughs> yeah. God bless them. I, yeah. I did not know they existed before this story. But they are an app, and so they they block. You know, you can pay them to block robocalls. And mm-hmm. the way that they train their machines is they basically buy 
old crappy phone lines that have mm-hmm. been over, so overrun with robocalls that nobody wants them anymore. Ah. And they, they, they use it as like a honey trap. And so then they just record every one of these. They get robocalls all the time. They record all of them to, just, to determine, okay, who's, who's making these calls? What numbers are they coming from? But for our purposes, it meant when I called them and said, hey, look, I'm interested in these groups. They said, oh, yeah, we have 90,000 phone calls from <gasps> those groups you know, we have the recordings, we have the transcripts, you know, they are to them, you know, for, they, they said, look, we think these are some of the most prolific robocallers in the country. And we can show you all this evidence going back years. Wow. And when we're talking about those groups, we're talking about the veteran, the alleged veteran groups, the firefighter groups. Those are mm-hmm. those are the groups that we're talking about who hire these robocall companies at, who are making the majority of these calls. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, another part of your piece is these operatives, the three um Politicos from Wisconsin, I mean, they were plowing the money back into their fundraising operation. They were also kind of putting money into their own pockets. And, you know, it's I think you had 3% of the money went back into to their pockets. Is that all they took? Or is there more money that they took from this? That's all we know about. And there's, mm-hmm. there's limitations on what we can see. We don't, if, if they were getting paid on the side, like sort of kickbacks by the, the fundraising vendors, we can't see that. They, they've said they weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, if they were getting, if, you know, one really lucrative thing that these groups were producing was a list. They, you know, everybody who says, you know, says yes to you and gives you, gives you money, put them on a list. Mm-hmm. You can then sell that list. Look, here's people uh-huh. who will answer the phone and give you money on the phone. You can sell it or rent it to campaigns, to other nonprofit groups. So these, these you know, in that way, getting a lot of little donations was actually better because now you have a longer list with more uh-huh. people. So we want to know who sold or rented the lists. The groups themselves should own them, and we don't see any evidence they did. Uh-huh. If these consultants had a list they could rent, we're talking maybe millions, tens of millions of dollars worth of value. Uh, so that's one thing we're trying to figure out there is like, was there another asset they were producing, these lists that made the money personally? Well, I wanted to bring in um, another guest here, and that's Ellen April. She's a tax law specialist and a, and a professor emerita at Loyola Marymount Universe Law School in Los Angeles. Professor April, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much. Well, you're a tax law specialist, and you have heard about this um, scheme or, or scandal I just quick question: Has the IRS investigated this? Investigated this, and I mean, are the nonprofits stretching the law, or are they breaking it? Well, David Story says the IRS has investigated these groups, and they claim they pass muster. We don't know any details about this. Mm-hmm. These particular groups, these five twenty sevens, are political organizations that are regulated by the IRS and not the FEC, as David said. The FEC can regulate only groups that engage in express advocacy. Give the money to the candidate, vote for against the candidate. That goes back to Buckley v. Vallejo, the important Supreme case in 1976. But these groups can do activities that come short of express advocacy that nonetheless are intended to help elect a candidate. I don't really see much activity by these groups that have to do with candidates. We call them political organizations, but we don't mean all kinds of political activity. We don't mean lobbying. We mean electing people to office. And I just don't see that they're doing that from the information we have. The Mm -hmm. problem is part that the 
statute says direct or indirect activity. And I think they would be arguing they're doing indirect activity and the statute doesn't require them to do any direct activity. So it's the problem is kind of the the law itself. And and David, you said when the operatives were confronted about this, that they they their argument is we are doing politics because we're raising the issue. So by raising the issue of veteran suicide, there you go. We've we've satisfied the law. Is is that right? Yeah. Basically, they said that they just believe in a really, really indirect method of helping politicians. <laughs> they just don't believe in endorsing a candidate or mentioning their name or giving them money or doing anything that looks like they're helping them. Instead, they said, well, we're just going to raise these issues obliquely. Mm -hmm. And we know that if we, you know, and to that end, that phone call that you heard at the beginning, that phone call from quote unquote, Frank Wallace, Mm -hmm. to them, that even the fundraising is itself political activity. It's the fundraiser and it's the thing that the fundraiser pays for Mm -hmm. because they're saying, hey, you know, police, did you know there are police? You know, and, and the the idea of like planting that sort of broad subject in a voter's mind mm-hmm. could shape their vote down the road. It doesn't seem like a very effective way of, of changing <laughs> votes, but I guess their argument is like it doesn't, you know, there's no law that says we have to do it in an effective way, as long as we're doing it somehow. Well, I love the description of this from one of the people quoted in your article, a lawyer with the firm Kaplan and Drysdale. Can you share with us what how he characterized it? <laughs> <laughs> he said, this is an elaborate self-licking ice cream cone. <laughs> Well, let's go to some listener comments. Um, A listener writes, I thought the FCC had taken steps to ban robocalls altogether. Are these groups exploiting loopholes or exceptions? David? Yes. uh, The answer is yes. So so there are a lot of limits on robocalls, but one of the groups that are exempt from those limits, even from the quote unquote, do not call registry, are political groups. So Mm. the, the robocalls these groups are using, they couldn't do it if they were a charity. They couldn't do it if they were, you know, a Best Buy or something, mm-hmm. you know, they can only political groups are, are exempted from this. So, yes, it is a loophole in that system. Wow. Um, and Professor April, why isn't the IRS taking up the cause here? I mean, this seems like it's skirting to the edge of the law and worth investigating. Is this something that the IRS could and should be looking into? They certainly could. IRS does very little enforcement of tax exempt organizations. It doesn't have the funds to do that. Even the new money isn't, if it comes to pass, isn't going to exempt orgs. And these kinds of investigations aren't going to put a lot of money into the IRS's pocket. And what we primarily ask the IRS to do is to raise revenue. So they're not on the top priority of the IRS in general. The examinations of Groups that file the annual information return 990s, percentage is lower than the percentage for corporations and individuals. It's very small indeed. Mm. Well, we have a listener, Marsha. She writes, I get calls from, quote, police organizations all the time. I assume that any real police or fire department would not ask for personal information or donations over the phone. Again, these are real organizations. Are they representing firefighters or policemen? Are there any organizations or unions that are affiliated with these groups, David? No. Uh, So, for instance, like the American Police Officers Alliance, you hear that name and think it must be an alliance of American police officers, but it's not. There's no Mm. police involved in it at all. No active duty police. So, no, these, these groups, I mean, if you're thinking about 
you know, a volunteer fire department or a, uh, you know, a police union, something that's sort of more tied to active duty serving people. No, these groups are not connected to those folks. They would say, you know, we're serving those people's interests, but, you know, they're not affiliated with unions. They're not representing unions. Well, let's go to the phones. We've got Andrew from Petaluma. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Forum. Hey, first of all, I just wanted to thank uh, David for even bringing this out to the public. As I'm hearing this story, I'm wondering how on earth could someone do something and raise that much money (laughs) and get away with not spending it where it's supposed to go? And then that figure hit me, that $89 million, that's exactly what Black Lives Matter did. Black Lives Matter raised a similar amount of money. I think it was either $89 million or $90 million, and they didn't give the money the way they said they were going to do it. And as a result, the entire Black Lives Matter movement became demonized. So I'm wondering, why didn't this group receive the same amount of attention for scamming people for that much money and not doing what they said they were going to do? And actually, I'm looking on the KQED website right now. It doesn't really give the information for this particular story. Someone might want to update that. But this is a very interesting story. I, I remember learning that the Better Business Bureau wasn't actually a bureau. It's just a company that hides, mm. that lets people pay them to get represented with a rating and not have to deal with any federal oversight. It's amazing. Yeah, These scammers are out of control. But thank you for bringing this up, David. This is great. Well, thank you for your call, Andrew. And I mean, I think that's the, the why hasn't anybody done anything is sort of the crux of your reporting, David. Yes. I mean, there there is a, as, as Professor April said, there's not a huge amount of enforcement on any nonprofit group. The IRS is the, you know, the, a very distracted and uh, inadequate regulator in that way. But there is a lot, you know, comparatively, there's a lot more scrutiny on charities, 501c3 traditional charities, um, because they're like Black Lives Matter, like, you know, some of the groups that, that have Black Lives Matter in their name, because those groups, A, are regulated by state level officers. And California has a, a pretty aggressive attorney general. The New York attorney general goes after folks. So there's another layer of regulation that can go after those charities. And also just those charities, it's a lot easier to find their information. Their information is out there in a way that's like very searchable and findable. These 527 groups I'm writing about, by contrast, are not affected by states at all. They're they're exempted from state oversight. And also they are, as we've been talking about, just to understand what they're doing with their money is so much harder than it is with a traditional charity. So it's a combination of less police, effectively, Mm. and less transparency. I really would like to emphasize that, especially with the IRS being so constrained, much enforcement has gone to the states. And states will have authority over charities in a way that they don't have under these 527s. Well, let's go back to the phones. Uh, Nadine and San Anselmo, welcome to Forum. Hi. um, Maybe you just kind of answered my question. I remember that the IRS some time ago had gone after uh, nonprofits, and maybe it was the 503Cs, or I want to know, was it this category? And I believe they got a lot of blowback and pushback, and I, I think it was from the Republicans. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you know what I'm referring to, and was that about the 503Cs or the 527s? And is that a reason that the IRS might feel like once burned, twice shy to go after these other guys? Well, that's a okay. great question, and I wanted to address that to you, Professor April. I mean, back in the 2000s, the IRS did get into some hot water in terms of trying to regulate Tea Party um, PACs. Isn't that right? That's correct. Tea parties were applying for 501c4 status. 
501c4 status or for social welfare organizations, and they can engage in a substantial amount of campaign intervention. The IRS thought they had too much campaign intervention and kept asking about that. So the issue was the line between 527s and 501c4s. My belief, I haven't talked to the groups, is that they wanted to be sure to be 501c4s instead of 527s so they wouldn't have to do all the reporting that mm-hmm. 527s have to do as hard as it is to find it. And it became a scandal that has affected the IRS to this day and I'm pretty sure makes them hesitant to wade into political waters. Right, because they got a lot of pushback from the Republicans for even looking into this issue. Correct. Yeah. Well, we have um, a lot more questions. A listener writes, it seems like this kind of thing always supports conservative causes. Do you see this on the left as well? I mean, David, are there liberal scammers out there? There definitely have been folks that tried. I, I mm-hmm. mean, there there was a, a, a guy who was prosecuted uh, just recently, this this year, who in, uh, I think it was in 2020, basically set up a fake pack pretending to be Joe Biden and a fake pack pretending to be Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And in the past, people have done the same thing. You know, I'm a fake Bernie pack. I'm a fake, you know, Hillary Clinton pack. And, and even the groups, the sort of broader network of groups that we were writing about, some of the folks affiliated with them did start sort of a Bernie Sanders-esque left-leaning group. Those groups, the, the sort of left, the sort of appeals to the left by these groups have not done that well. And I think maybe one one reason here is the mode of fundraising. Robocalling, if you're gonna if you're gonna do robocalling as the main means of your operation, they can only go to landlines. And so you're targeting by nature people who are gonna pick up a landline. Oh. If you're looking for younger people, it's not gonna work that way. So the, you know, you might scam them a different way, but it, but I, th- I think partially because of the mode with which these groups work. It's mainly older folks and mainly conservative causes. Well, we're talking about political nonprofits called 527s and a New York Times investigative report that revealed that a a small group of conservative consultants have raised a lot of money for nonprofits but hasn't given back to them. Uh, If you'd like to join our conversation, give us a call. We're at 866-733-6786. Maybe you're a veteran, firefighter, or police officer. How do you feel about these organizations raising money in your name? And what other questions do you have about this investigation? And Maybe you're concerned about the use of political nonprofits to raise money for campaigns and politicians in the first place. Email your comments and questions to us at forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Stay, Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. We're talking about loopholes and coming up close to the line of IRS regulations that have affected certain 527s created by conservative consultants who managed to raise $89 million through robocalling over the last nine years. I'm joined by the investigative reporter who broke the story, David Farenthold. He's at the New York Times, and he previously won the Pulitzer Prize for covering Donald Trump's false claims regarding charitable contributions. We also have Professor Emerita Ellen April. She's a professor emerita at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. She's an expert in nonprofit profit tax law. So, Professor April, I wanted to go to you. I mean, we're talking about just activity just on the edge of the law. And I'm curious, are there loopholes that should be closed here? I can think of a few that should be closed. One is to make clear that you have to have direct expenses in order to have indirect expenses. Another possible loophole here is that we don't have a statutory provision against excess benefit by insiders. Other provisions of the Internal Revenue Code dealing with tax-exempt organizations explicitly forbid that. Section 527 doesn't. That would be another way in for the IRS and maybe for whistleblowers. Those provisions have been added to other parts of the Internal Revenue Code, I would recommend that they get added here as well. Well, and with with that, when you say whistleblowers, it would allow somebody, maybe perhaps the tipster um, who put David onto this story, to recoup some money for bringing that to to the IRS's attention? Only if it ended up with taxation. Mm -hmm. So a whistleblower gets a percentage of what the IRS recovers. And if it didn't mean they had their exemption revoked, they might actually not end up with a big amount of money. But it is the sort of thing that the IRS does get told about and can investigate. And it's somewhat more objective than some of these other standards. Right. Um, Well, we're getting a lot of uh, comments and questions about robocalls themselves. A listener writes, we get more than 20 robocalls a day on our business line. That is not only annoying, but it is a total intrusion on our business and our life. It should be dealt with as a crime. Uh, robocalls aren't a crime, are they, David? No, but th- there are some things people can do. I mean, it, the, the Do Not Call Registry will help with some things, although not this. Uh, there's also, coming in July, there'll be a little more relief. The F- FCC is limiting the number of times any particular robocaller can call you. Mm. It's three a month. So that's still a lot. Yeah. Uh, it, the, the one thing that I would say to people, if you want to go down this road, one thing you can do is sue robocallers. If they robocall your cell phone, you can sue them and get anywhere between $500 and $1,500 per call. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but right. it's, you know there are people who make a sort of cottage industry out of that. I, I feel like I could make a lot of money on that based on my totally. cell phone. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, John writes, are 527s required to file tax returns like 501c nonprofits? If so, then wouldn't they have to disclose expenditures, including payments to third parties? Um, Professor April? Yes, they do have to file this form 990. It often doesn't give you enough detail to know whether people are being paid too much 
even if you find out that they're being paid large sums, it has to be above the fair market value. And that's not always obvious. Mm-hmm. And a lot. One of the problems, as you said, David, is that these organizations were filing forms for like little amounts—thirty dollars, fifty dollars—so allowing them to fly below the radar and making it really hard to aggregate what they were actually making. That's right. And, and the guys who were the insiders would often use shell companies. So you know, what, even if you were able to aggregate all those expenses, you'd mm-hmm. get you know some company that looked like it was in the, you know many states away from where the insiders were. It was only a lot of went through a lot of document searches that we were able to tie that company in Tennessee. Oh wait, that company's actually related to this guy in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And, to, and to, to, the, to the questioner's point, there there were places on their IRS filings where these groups were asked, "Hey, did you have engage in any business transaction with, with your own officers?" Mm-hmm. And in, in every case, these groups would just say no, even when it was the case that they had. Mm-hmm. We asked them about that, like you know, after all this effort, we figured out that what they'd said on their form was wrong. Mm-hmm. They had been paying their own officers. And they said, well, that was just, a, they called it a scrivener's error. That was a scrivener's <laughs> error by our accountant. And, you know, this happens. You mean like a typo? <laughs> yeah, like just a typo that they repeated every year for five years. I do like scrivener's error. I think I'm going to use that in the <laughs> yeah, future. <laughs> sounds very fancy. <laughs> very fancy. Let's go back to the po- phones. We've got Pamela from Sebastopol. Pamela, welcome to Forum. Thank you for taking my call, and I will take my answers off the air. I there. One point is that I am a retired CPA and have worked for a Peace Officers Association locally in the past, and I can tell you that they are legitimate. They do good work with what they do raise. Nevertheless, if one wants to contribute to their local Peace Officers Association, do it directly. Uh, They do hire out for fundraising because the peace officers themselves do not have time to get all this revenue for their uh, nonprofit areas and things that they, they do charitably. So just be aware, don't pay anything over the phone. Mm-hmm. Don't do it over the phone. Period. If I can add. Yeah, that's a piece of good advice. Thank you, Pamela. Firefighters and policemen, police people are very appealing to callers. So I think extra care needs to be taken when you get calls about them. There are false charities as well as 527s that claim to help them. And again, it's because people respond so positively to their needs. So do take extra care. Well, I think this raises another issue and another harm in this um, scam, which is that these organizations that purport to raise money for veterans and police and EMS um, uh, attendants, they actually take away from legitimate organizations and they make you maybe perhaps suspicious of any kind of charitable request, whether political or otherwise, because you're just not sure. You hear a story like this and suddenly, no, nothing seems legit. What do you say about that, David? I think it's absolutely right. I mean, just to give you one example of the sort of direct harm this could do, we talked to a woman who had given 35 different times to these mm. th- the five nonprofits we talked about. They called her all the time. She'd given 35 times, totaling $3,600. She was somebody who was a retiree uh, living in Washington State. And she said, look, you know, I gave them so much money. I had less to give to, you know, my other causes. And to her, the, you know, the other causes that she was cutting back on were things like St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. So, mm. you know, it, it wasn't like she was she had, had budgeted, OK, I'm going to give such and such amount to political groups. And this was sucking that up. In her mind, it was all one big thing. I'm going to give to good causes. And so she was helping these guys at their expense of legitimate, you know, real charities. Mm-hmm. And 
does she represent the the typical demographic of people who are targeted by this scam? Yes, from what we can tell. So these groups often have to give the the ages and occupations of their donors. And yes, it was extremely common for people to be in their 80s or 90s and for people to be retired. Mm-hmm. Um, Alan writes, how are these organizations rated by places like Charity Navigator, or are they even rated by them since they are 527s? David, are, do these groups fall under sort of a Charity Navigator um, research um, website? No, they're not. They, that's, that's one of the problems here is that they don't. They sort of there has sprung up uh, as sort of a cottage industry of, of true charity, groups that rate true charities, a ch- charity watchdog, charity navigator or two. Um, but no, that these groups, because they're not charities, are not part of that system at all. Well, let's go back to the phone. Mike from East Palo Alto. Welcome to Forum, Mike. Hello there. My name is Ian from East Palo Alto. As far as I'm just going to keep giving to Mercy Ships and St. Jude and SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center. I would like you to um, put on their website or play over the phone how you can sue these. Also, I've received these robocalls all the time, and they always ask me. I say I don't have any money. I'm doing everything with. Um, I'm doing everything with money orders. Mm-hmm. They never. They they always put me through to a person. The first thing she says, and they all sound the same, is what check. What car will you be using? I said, mm-hmm. I told you I didn't have any car. They either hang up on me or they don't send me anything. And then the same call comes and comes and comes. It's always, I get more calls, about six calls a day. Mm-hmm. That's why I can yeah, I mean, it is a it is a problem of being once you it seems like once you're in the robocall system and you answer it, does that make you more susceptible to getting another robocall, David? Oh, absolutely. I mean, th- that woman I mentioned in Washington State, you know, saying yes to these groups only meant more and more and more robocalls because they, you know, they share lists or they share vendors. So, yeah, in the, in the end, that lady didn't even answer her phone at all. Like She yeah. would never pick up the phone when anyone called because she just got overwhelmed. Yeah. In, in response to the caller's question, the, the, the mechanism you, you would use to sue these folks is called the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. If you Google, Google that, you might find some law firms that specialize in that. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, good to know. Good to know. Let's go back to the phones. We've got Rob from San Francisco. Hi, Rob. Welcome Hi, to Forum. Hi. Um, boy, this makes me miss the old days when the people that would call you up to telemarketers were a live person and you could mess with them a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I got so many robocalls all the time. Um, I finally bought a Google Pixel phone. I don't work for Google. I'm not trying to push their phone. Mm-hmm. But they have a feature called um, Call Screener. And if you suspect it's a robocaller, you hit that and it um, it generates an automated a voice message to the caller that says, hi, I'm using voice, you know, whatever, screening calls, and please state who you are and what your business is. And 99.9% of the calls just hang up on me. They don't even try to get around it. And then it makes it so that I don't have to not answer the phone every time because I'm worried because sometimes it's a number I don't recognize that I need to get a call back from, and the person will start talking. I can tell, okay, that's a real person. I don't know if the robocalls are able to get around that, but so far um, they haven't been able to. I like that you're using a little robo technology to get around the robocall, <laughs> Rob. I mean, that's pretty, that, that's, you know, putting it, giving them their own medicine. Um, yeah, I, as as we gear up for the political um, 2024 landscape, do you expect, David, that this problem is going to get worse 
Are we going to see other types of organizations do the same thing as these groups? I do anticipate that. The, you know, the more polarized, the more politicized the country gets, the, the more fertile ground there is for these folks. So, I, yes, I do see, I, I think we'll see groups like this and also some of the other sort of little more uh, nefarious sort of groups where they will just call up and say, and this has happened in the last three elections, they'll call up and say, hey, I'm raising money for Donald Trump. And you give money on the phone and it actually just goes to some guy in Texas. Like, mm. you know, e- even people who use the name of a real candidate cannot be trusted if they call you on the phone. So, yes, I do anticipate we'll see more of this. Well, this is Forum. I'm Grace Wan in for Mina Kim. You're pointing out that we were talking about how this um, scams like this put a burden on real charities, but it really will put um, a burden on legitimate political fundraising. And I wonder, David, are groups like the DNC or the Republican National Committee, are they addressing this issue at all and trying to or is it kind of beyond their ken? You know, I don't see a lot of effort by by either political party, either the parties themselves or elected officials in Congress to try to change this, which is to me a little surprising because, if, you know, the the victims in this this scheme obviously are the donors whose money is being sent to other the places other than they think it's going. But this sort of secondary victim are Republican politicians. These are people who would have given to Republicans and maybe thought they were giving to Republicans and they weren't. So it's a little surprising to see that Republicans are not more interested in sort of closing off this loophole. But in general, Republicans have been a force behind deregulation of campaign finance, you know, more broadly. And it may be that they don't feel like they can push to close this loophole while opening others. You know, there are a lot of comments on your piece in The New York Times, and I was kind of scrolling through them. And some, one person wrote, all of these non-for-profits, these PACs, they're not exploiting the law. They're actually following the law created by the people who benefit benefit from it. I mean, they're not, it's, it, they're not doing anything wrong. They're just kind of following the law. What's your take on that, um, Professor April? I think that part of the reason we see the prohibition on campaign intervention by 501c3s, by charities, often called the Johnson Amendment, is in part self-interest of the politicians that they don't want to subsidize by allowing the deduction for any kind of campaign support, including their own. So I do see we have a tension with a lot of self-interest by politicians in doing these kinds of rules. But I don't know how to solve that problem. Right. I mean, it does seem, David, like this isn't a bug. It's a feature. Right. I mean, I think in general, deregulation of the campaign finance system is certainly a feature. I don't know if any politicians sat down and thought of this loophole that like, (laughs) hey, you know, you can raise money for politics, but never spend it on politics. That may Mm -hmm. have come about sort of by and been discovered by accident. Uh, But it certainly is true that the system is designed with lots of leaks, lots of backdoors, lots of ways to hide what you're doing. They may not have intended for this particular leak to exist, but it's it's sort of a byproduct of this purposefully kind of kludgy system. Right. Yeah, we don't see any support for public support of campaign financing, especially on the Republican side. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have to live with these kinds of abuses. Well, Barry writes, this is an easy problem to solve. Just have the politicians close the loophole exempting political robocalls. This would end these groups. But then the politicians cannot use robocalls anymore either. How many politicians and groups directly affiliated with politicians use robocalls and robotext? That's the reason. Uh, Barry brings up robotexting. And is that something these organizations were doing as well? Or is it just calls? They were doing a little bit of text messaging. It seems like it was mostly calls. 
And the, 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 the listener makes an interesting point. I don't think that robocalls are that popular. That, that, well, while campaigns, real campaigns are allowed to do robocalls mm-hmm. because they're political groups, they don't do it that much because it's so expensive. You know, there's so many cheaper ways to raise money, you know, online. You know, how much does an email cost to send? Uh, you know, there, there, are, there are digital fundraising methods are often or just like phone banking with volunteers are so much cheaper than doing this. that I don't see a lot of politicians using robocalls, uh, but they may want to keep that option open. Mm-hmm. So as we as we were talking about going into the 24 election, as a consumer, are there any other things I can do to keep myself informed and make sure that I am giving to a legitimate organization versus a scam. David? I mean, what the caller said earlier, I think, is the be- the best place to start. Just don't give the people who call you on the phone. If somebody calls you on the phone and you like what they're saying, go find their website. Go, you know, go check, it out, check them out. Make sure they're legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially in politics, if you, if you like a candidate and you want to make sure your money gets to them, don't mm-hmm. go through a middleman. Don't go through a pack. Just right. give money straight to the candidate. Yeah. I think that's probably the, the, the easiest way to make sure your money's going where you intend. Mm-hmm. It is a little hard, though, because, I, again, I look at these websites and they looked legitimate. They did not look like scams when I, when no. I read them. Are there any tips to be able to say, hmm, that doesn't look right, that doesn't look kosher, David? Well, I mean, I think they're, they're, in this case, you know, one extra step would be if you want to give to a group like this, Google them. See see what's out there. In in many of the cases, the groups that I wrote about, you would find articles where local police departments had warned their residents not to give to these people. In one case, there was a Better Business Bureau report warning people not to give to one of these groups. You know, look around for, you know, both to figure out if they're who they say they are, but also if other people have been sort of reporting them or describing them as scams. Well, it's a fascinating issue and one I'm sure, David, you're going to be returning to. Yes. Yes. And Professor April, thank you so much for your expertise here. You're most welcome. We've been talking about political nonprofits called 527s and an explosive New New York Times report about a group of consultants who raised a lot of money for politics and didn't give it didn't give very much money back. We've been joined by David Farenthold. He's the New York Times investigative reporter who broke the story. And Professor April, law professor. Professor Ellen April, law professor emerita at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. Have a great day. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.